0: hey everyone have you heard about our little research project we're doing on core strength if not there is a link in the show notes to an article that explains the core strength protocol it's one month of exercises and it's supposed to give you a 10 percent increase in your anaerobic capacity so we're hoping that you can try it out and you can let us know your results so take a look at that article and enjoy the episode hello and welcome to the performance cycling podcast i'm jason hammond i'm here with todd norwood Todd, how's it going today?
1: It's going well. How are you doing, Jason? I'm
0: doing pretty good. What do we have for our topic today?
1: So, we're going to talk about cadence and efficiency when we're cycling. I think that's important because I think something we might ask ourselves when we're talking about our performance is, well, what rate should I be pedaling at if I want to be the most efficient, if I want to cover the most ground with the least amount of energy? and science has some answers for us and some recommendations on what we might want to do. So we can try to work that out. And of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different, but there is some trend here. And it's just maybe something to think about as you're going through your training. Uh, Yes, I want to try to practice and try to train closer to this cadence because the research says this might be the most efficient for me in the long run.
0: Okay, so if we go back to previous episodes, I don't want to steal the thunder, Todd, but basically the idea, the overall premise is there is some optimal cadence for efficiency. And like if we take this to to the extreme, a cadence of 10 is not going to be efficient for anybody. That seems very intuitive. And at the same time, a cadence of 140, you're bouncing too much to ever put enough energy into the pedals. so if we follow these curves we connect the dots there should be some number that is most effective at producing power and probably another one that's most effective for using energy they may be the same number they may be different numbers and you're saying there's some science to to tell us what the right answer is or at least hint at it
1: yeah i think that's fair i think hint hint is fair and your mileage may vary a little bit uh, to your point depending on what your goal is. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to sprint really fast? Or are you trying to ride for a long time? And before we dive into the topic, we need to do a little bit of background. We need to talk about a couple of terms and set up the ground rules for how it is that we're going to measure efficiency. So one measure of efficiency is Looking at your wattage, right? Looking at how far or how much energy is going into the pedals or into the bike to move us forward. So that's one part of the equation is your wattage, but you can't measure efficiency just using your power meter. You have to know something else. So I think a great example, Jason, is I can get on my bike, I can pedal for an hour, I can average some number of watts, and there's some number of kilojoules of energy that that is. But to really look at efficiency, we need to know how much energy I had to burn as a rider to produce the kilojoules at the pedals. So we need to understand the metabolic cost of that energy that was produced at the pedals. And to do that really well, you actually have to be in a lab and you have to measure your, your oxygen lo- utilization and exchange. So that's one thing like that's our, that's how we're looking at at efficiency uh, is how much power the pedals uh, divided by energy was expended from the human being to move those pedals
0: yes so efficiency is just the amount of energy produced versus the amount of energy actually used by the engine and this is true for not just humans all energy systems coal-powered power plants or solar panels all these things have a certain amount of energy that goes in how much energy goes out to push you forward that's inherently the term efficiency
1: yep and then there's gross efficiency. Uh, There's a couple other measures that we're going to talk about. So one is force effectiveness, and I think some of our crank power meters will start to calculate this for us. And what that is by definition is the ratio between the force directed perpendicular, so 90 degrees to the crank arm, and the total resultant force on the pedal. And we know that our forces that are perpendicular to the crank arm are really the ones that are going to be driving us forward. So that's what force effectiveness is.
0: All right, so for this, sort of back to mechanical engineering theory, uh, if we have force that isn't perpendicular to the crank arm, it's sort of wasted. The energy is spent sort of pushing on the crank in the wrong direction, it doesn't spin around. and So you can have a really high total force, but if you just push straight down on the pedals, when the crank's at six o'clock, you're not going to go anywhere. So it's not Correct. just it's not just the amount of force you produce, it's the amount of force you produce that's perpendicular to the crank arm, right, Todd?
1: Yes, and thus it's meaningful in terms of moving us forward. Yep. And so that pairs nicely with this concept of dead center, which we talk about top or bottom dead center being the 12 or six o'clock position, but the way this is defined is um, actually as the minimum power during the pedal stroke divided by the average power of the pedal stroke. So it's a ratio here, uh, sort of an interesting ratio, but it, it turned out that in some of these studies they found that that was uh, more related to gross efficiency than the force effectiveness. So we're going to throw that in there because we're going to touch on it, and, but we'll come back to that when we talk through some of these studies here.
0: Okay, I never knew that's why they called it a uh, dead center, because it was uh, the, like the the valley of the power.
1: I assume there's other reasons. It's called dead center because it's centered on, you know, I think that's a different, comes from a different uh, place, but it applies and it works there as well.
0: Hmm. So we'll have to make sure that this is a a paper-specific vocabulary word. We'll have to check, check with each author and see which term they're using or how they're using it.
1: I'll start at the highest level, which I think this is very interesting which is to say there's a review that I looked at and what they said is 91% of the variance in energy expenditure can be explained by work rate and only 10% thus being explained by differences in cadence. Now, this has to do with some of the methodology that we use. So gross efficiency is dependent on work rate because we have a resting metabolic rate. So we exist before we start pedaling and we use some energy. And the more energy you use, the more watts you're putting out, the less your base metabolic rate matters. This particular author theorized that this is perhaps one of the reasons that we see that the elite riders are more efficient than lower level riders because they put out more watts. They're capable of putting out more watts so their base energy is less of the equation.
0: So we see this trend where professional cyclists are more efficient and the claim by the author is that it's just because they're stronger.
1: Exactly. They're putting out more watts and so the amount of energy required to exist takes up less of that equation. It just is a smaller part of the pie. So that's that's fine and that is a methodological limitation of course there's a way to do that more cleanly which is you subtract your basal metabolic rate from the energy that you're using, and then you would clean that up and you could control for that.
0: And so you would do that by just sort of letting them breathe on the bike for 10 minutes before the test starts, right? And just measuring the amount of energy they spend just sitting there.
1: Exactly. You'd have that. And then if you subtracted that from the energy that they then expended beyond that when they were cycling, you could start to measure efficiency and remove that effect. Uh, I guess... That actually gets quite complicated. I it think it's, from what I understand from the papers, a little harder than it than we're making it seem.
0: I mean, there's a reason researchers decide on their methods, and it may actually just be easier to say, yeah, this is a confounding factor, and maybe it's kind of important, but you know, doesn't null and void our our research.
1: So, a couple interesting findings from this larger paper, and then we'll get into some of the more experimental papers. So, one of the findings that they found was. Riders' freely chosen cadence tends to be somewhat less efficient than what the theoretically energetically optimal one would be, which I think is a kind of an important takeaway. What they're saying is we're all out there picking a cadence and we're not picking the most efficient one.
0: So for whatever reason, the reason we pick that cadence is not because we think it's the most energy efficient. We have some other internal motivation.
1: Yeah, we I don't know, we like it, or we've seen another rider do it, or it seems like it's working. Maybe it is working for us, but potentially they're arguing we might do better. We, there may be a more efficient cadence for us to pedal at.
0: Hmm, that's that's really interesting because I agree with my cadence. I just like my cadence. You know, If my coach says, oh, you know, drop your cadence by 20 or 10, or raise it by 20 or 10. I don't want to. I like my cadence. But I I don't actively say why I like it. I don't say, oh, I feel like I'm using less energy. If it just feels better. Like muscle-wise or, or body-wise, it just feels natural. It feels right.
1: Right. Which is an interesting balance. Potentially, the best thing to do might not be the thing that feels right. And maybe if you trained at that a little bit you would become better at it and it would feel more natural.
0: Hmm, That's a good point And, and there are definitely evidence of that in many different sports of this may seem intuitive for you to do but actually the best athletes or the best people in this sport do it a little differently and so this could maybe open that box of maybe we should be forcing ourselves to do something less fun or less intuitive in order to get an advantage.
1: And then this next point from this paper gets to what you were suggesting when we just opened up the podcast, which is to say that the efficiency of cadence, so if you have cadence on your horizontal axis and efficiency on your vertical axis, is an inverted U shape. So, There's a sweet spot in the middle where you're most efficient. It's not at a really low cadence. It's not at a really high cadence.
0: And I think that's intuitive. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I even gave the example, right? Take the really extremes, they're not going to be efficient. And it's interesting. I'm I'm glad it's a U and not like a W because that could be really kind of weird if it was more complex. But I think the real question here is where is the peak of the U and you know, is it a good idea to sit there?
1: Yep. And so it depends is going to be the answer, but I do think there's a, a sweet spot. So let's talk about some studies that were done to evaluate this. Uh, this particular one here, they looked at 14 elite level riders. And they had a very interesting protocol. So what they did is they had the riders do five different uh, time trials, each about six minutes in duration. And they were at 60 RPMs, 80 RPMs, 100, 120, and whatever the rider's self-selected cadence was. And the idea was they had it set sort of like an ERG. so. The rider could increase the wattage, but they had to maintain the cadence, and they were looking at how fast they covered a fixed distance. That okay. makes sense. Like you could shift gears, but you had to maintain the cadence. Yep. Across this study, so a very short time, though, right? Only about five to six minutes was the average time for the completion of the time trial.
0: And I think that makes sense. Did they randomize it based on which one was first? I, that's also seems intuitive that each athlete yep. would start with a different. So one person would start with a hundred, one would start with 80, and then they would sort of randomly scramble them in orders in order to take out any fatigue component based on having Correct. to do other Correct. tests.
1: Yes. Yeah. That was, that was part of it. It wasn't like it was, you know, progressive or anything.
0: And it um, makes, so it makes sense that it's six minutes each because, You know, what? we don't want to do six 30-minute time trials or 20-minute time trials for these uh, subjects.
1: Right. It's just not practical. And the fatigue, there's so many other factors. So something to take into account, though, is this study is maybe only valid for events that last six minutes. Sure. So what they found, I said, was 80 RPMs was the fastest across the conditions. 60 was about 3% slower than 80. 100 was about 2% slower than 80 this jason will make you happy 120 was 10% slower than 80 wow <laughs> and the self selected was essentially the same as 80 or 100 like it was in between but it's no significant difference between the two so it was basically same from a gross efficiency standpoint 80 was the most efficient so not only fastest it was also the most efficient that's nice that's convenient right to see that the most efficient approach was also the fastest approach and we also see a similar pattern where compared to 60 and 100, it was closest, but then compared to 120, 80 was 12.3% more efficient than pedaling at 120 RPMs.
0: And these are moderately trained cyclists?
1: Uh, they say elite cyclists.
0: Oh, okay. So. Well, so it sounds like we've now bracketed our goal cadence to 80 to 100 for six-minute efforts. So let's get that down on the table. We just have to do seven-minute, eight-minute, nine-minute efforts. Um and, uh, and everything in between.
1: And then there was one comment they made that basically the rate of energy use was, rate of energy turnover was higher at 100 than 80. But the fact that 100 was much less efficient basically did, didn't give a benefit. I'm not quite, I don't quite understand how they're using energy turnover here, to be honest. But it basically they use this to say, well, this reinforces our conclusion that 80 was the best of the things that we tested.
0: Mm, but 100 was only a little bit off,
1: three point four percent, but significant in their data. Okay, so different study, wider range of cadences, also tested across different wattages. So instead of in the prior study I mentioned, they picked their wattage that they could put out. This one, they you can imagine this big chart, a big table of you know cadence times wattage to figure out what was what was happening and this one they did 20 different tests so they had five different cadences and four different wattages,
0: all in the same day
1: yeah uh three minutes for each cadence and then they'd they'd ramp you up so it was like ramped up three minutes at each set then 15 minute break and then three so like the way i worked it out it was about a two-hour test like an hour pedaling and an hour of rest time in between
0: Okay, awesome. I mean, that's also doable. Like, I'm I'm glad they're not eight hours a day for one subject or something like that. I think two hours is reasonable enough, especially for, like, an elite athlete to be able to handle the, the load.
1: These particular individuals weren't elite cyclists. They were healthy subjects. Not quite sure what that means. Didn't have injuries, weren't ill, but not elite riders. So take that into account when you're thinking about the results of this study. The other piece here is that the wattages were really low. The peak wattage was 160 watts. Whoa. So, so, the, so this is where we talk about the methodological flaws and how your basal metabolic rate factors in. When you're doing 40 watts, you're really inefficient because your basal metabolic rate is a big part of that pie hmm. as opposed to at 160. Like, that, that study was, of course, going to show that as work rate went up, you became more efficient. There was no other outcome because the work rate was so, started so low.
0: Sure. And so what did they find? I think this study is interesting because it's a 2D map. You can almost uh, provide like a raised three-dimensional graph from this 2D platform in terms of the efficiency. And so is, this, is the relationship between wattage and cadence and overall efficiency a single peak? Or is it flat? Or what does the shape look like? I guess it could also be like a ramp, potentially.
1: I think if I had to visualize this in three dimensions, it's a weird ramp looking thing um, from a a low corner to a high corner. So let me talk about this. Uh, When cadence was low across the wattage conditions, when there was a slope. So the lowest cadence in this condition was the most efficient and it sloped down towards the highest cadence. So 40 RPMs at 40 watts was more efficient than 120 RPMs at 40 watts. It was also more efficient than 60 RPMs at 40 watts. And that was true all the way up, but the slope is less steep as the wattage increased. Interesting. The the efficiency gets tighter and tighter. And then going the other way of what I said before is it goes kind of up on a curve from 40 watts up to 160 watts. At every cadence level, it becomes more efficient as you increase wattage, but still 40 RPMs at 160 watts efficient, but the error bars at 160 watts are tighter than they are at the lower values.
0: It sounds like the summary is we already know that the higher the wattage, the more efficient it is, and that's because of the basal metabolic rate of the individuals, Mm -hmm. but it also sounds like 40 cadence was the most efficient across all wattages.
1: That's correct. But these were relatively low wattages.
0: Sure. And so I wonder if 40 is still like, how far does that extend for 40? We know it doesn't extend up to like, well, the, what was gets the previous? To study.
1: This one gets to 160. And uh, what was the uh,
0: previous study at?
1: So I imagine it's elite riders that were picking their cadence for six minutes at a time. I'm sure it was more than 160.
0: Sure. That's probably 350, 400. Uh, for a six-minute test. So somewhere so, in between there, the cadence has to start going up in terms of the efficiency.
1: And so this is where I like this next study a lot because I think they do something that's really important here. Uh, they don't have as many subjects in it, but I think they do something that's really important and they control the intensity by taking it 75% of VO2 max. Okay still five-minute trials. The work rate is pegged per individual, which I think is important. We we shouldn't compare your watts and my watts. I'm bigger rider than you are. The energy required for me to push 160 is different than, you know, that's different portion of my capacity than it is for you to push 160. So we shouldn't compare that. We should compare as a portion of our VO2 max or as a portion of our threshold. So it's somewhat similar across riders. Sure. They they took a little bit different approach. And what they did with it is they did three cadences, three cadences, five minutes of work at the 75% VO2 max level. And the cadence were, their freely chosen cadence was one. So whatever their self-selected rate was. And then they did plus or minus 10 from that. So not the big swings that we've seen these other studies, a much tighter range of cadences uh, that they were looking at.
0: I just assumed right away you were going to say percentages. It's interesting that they chose plus 10 or minus 10, just cadence, pure cadence, rather than uh, as a percent.
1: Fair. Now, I'm going to imagine this is a little bit higher level group of cyclists because their freely chosen cadence was 96.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: So I think there's some some training here. And so if there is roughly then a 10%, increase or decrease of cadence. Right. So what they found here is that, so here's where we're talking. I'm going to talk a little bit about the force effectiveness and the gross efficiency in the dead center. This is where that comes in. This is a particular part of this study. And the other fun thing they did with this is they also made modifications in um, seat position as well to play with, if to see if that changed anything at all. And generally they found that moving forward and back or up and down a little bit didn't matter in terms of gross efficiency. So I guess take take that to mean if your seat slips a little bit, it's probably not affecting your performance too much. Uh, At least that's what this at least for five minutes, that's what this is saying. And I think we see that. I think we see that in big races like a Tour de France where somebody has a serious mechanical, they're in a pinch and they borrow a teammate's bike that's close enough. They stay with the group until they get it changed. Yeah. So I think that's the real-world justification of that scientific finding. Well,
0: and I think on top of that, something that my friend always harped on this, and he said it's sort of an industry secret. Saddle manufacturers don't really want to admit that you move around on the saddle. They have they, Their marketing team sort of says, this is the one place you sit, and that's it, and this is the perfect spot, and you're going to be super comfortable. In reality, we move all over the place on the bike. And mm-hmm. depending on if we're going uphill, downhill, whatever, high intensity, low intensity, we move around. And so to move the saddle a little bit, maybe the person just scooted right back to where they were before, didn't even notice yep. the change. Or, yep. you know, whatever, whatever these changes were. The person still found that position where they could produce a lot of power and You know, honestly, for a high intensity effort, we're limited by our aerobic capacity, the ability to get oxygen in. And so as long as your muscles aren't severely hampered by the change in position, you're gonna be able to produce the same VO2 max effort. The difference would be for a lower intensity effort. And that's why I think a lot of road racers, a lot of uh, long distance riders are more meticulous about their position is because when you are just a little bit off of the correct position, Todd, for four hours, and it's just bumping that wrong spot underneath of you,
1: it's horrible. Sure. No no argument with that. I, I can agree with that, having done some pretty long races. So yeah, and I think that's kind of why I picked that example to be the real-world justification. It's the the Tour de France rider only borrows his teammate's bike for a very short duration until the neutral service can catch up and then, or it's until their team car can catch up and then they get back on their own bike on the spare.
0: And so it's interesting, like finding this balance between, like, I would even say a track rider maybe doesn't need to have the perfect fit now that, now that we're onto this subject and maybe a uh, endurance rider should focus more on their fit a little more closely.
1: Sure. So, okay. So what did, what did we see here? What you saw is the seat didn't matter. Okay. I got that out of the way. Uh, we saw, as I mentioned before, that the dead center measurement was more associated with efficiency than the uh, force effectiveness measurement that sometimes shows up on our computers or our power mirrors that we have. But the other interesting thing they found is that, and this is kind of counterintuitive to me, that the riders that had a higher freely chosen cadence tended to show more negative effect by moving the cadence up or down then those are the lower freely chosen cadence.
0: Mm. So if you have a high cadence, it's harder for you to adapt.
1: Right, even though you would say from a percentage standpoint that's less of a percentage change than the lower cadence.
0: Mm. And so uh, in terms of their ability to maintain the same power, like the power drop-off was higher?
1: The efficiency, yes. So because we were holding the energy expenditure the VO2 max level the same, yes, the power drop off was greater.
0: Okay, that's interesting. I, my my initial reaction is that skinny little climbers love to have really high cadence and maybe they don't have enough muscle force to handle the same effort at a lower cadence. Um, but it is interesting, it could have to do with the way that the individual applies power. I noticed that people who have a lower cadence tend to have like a very powerful downstroke. They use that lower cadence to produce force over a long period of time, and I think people with high cadence, they kind of have a snappier attack on the pedal. I, I wonder how that influences. That stuff is not very scientific, the description, but if you look at the way people pedal, there are certainly differences in, in the way they people tackle the problem of pedaling.
1: Sure, and so what they conclude is that, yes, energy expenditure is related to cadence, But not force effectiveness so that's kind of an interesting finding so the force effectiveness is not going to be a good measure of pedaling technique to tell us about our efficiency they said that the force effectiveness the dead center measurement and your efficiency are not affected by your body orientation seat adjustments and their conclusion was that uh, those parameters and the relationship between and like the body is pretty robust. Basically you have, you have some range there outside of positioning, but cadence does seem to change your, your energy expenditure. So here, here we are, we've, we've said that low cadence is efficient at low power, and as you move up more, it becomes more efficient. We've said that something between 80 and hundred seems to be pretty efficient for elite level riders doing short efforts knowing that higher than that at 120 is less efficient and we've said that changing your position doesn't seem to change your efficiency but changing your cadence does. So the, some of these things align and some of these things challenge us a little bit. But here we are.
0: All right, so do we have anything definitive like so you know what should I do Todd?
1: So there are patterns, there are trends in the data and this paper I looked at was a review so I looked at a number of the the papers out there and they came to the following conclusion. So I think are are useful and instructive and align fairly well with what we've been discussing so far. So here's what they said. They said if you're trying to sprint and you're looking at maximum sprint performance, a high cadence and in their terms that's between 100 and 120 RPMs makes the most sense and that's because muscular force and neuromuscular fatigue um, are reduced and power output is maximized at higher pedal rates. I don't know that I fully agree with that last statement. If you're trying to sprint, you're, yes, relatively speaking, your muscle force per pedal is reduced at a higher cadence, but you're, maximum muscle, you're using maximum muscle force when you're sprinting.
0: Mm, well, this goes back to um, the explosive power episode. There was some relationship between activation time for the muscles and you know, for some people they can't produce as much power into the pedals because it takes too long for their muscles to fire or to maximally contract. And so it's interesting that they concluded that higher cadences were better. I don't know if that's true for every athlete. It should depend on the characteristics of the individual muscles.
1: Fair. And they do note that extremely high cadences increase the metabolic cost of cycling. So that's consistent with all the other studies saying, okay, if you're, if you're too high, it's going to be inefficient. That's what you said when we started off, you're bouncing the sap, you're, you're losing energy there. So that's, that seems to be the one consistent finding across all these papers is if the cadence, there's a problem with the cadence being too high. There's maybe some debate on the low end. I think that's methodological differences, but the high end that seems to be very clear. If you pedal too fast, it's going to be inefficient.
0: And then is there a lower bound at higher intensities?
1: Great question. They didn't go into say, okay, well, for sprints, you should not go lower than X. They made that recommendation for sprinting 100 to 120. Then they moved on to prolonged cycling, which they defined as road time trial. So long but not super long, and they says this may benefit from a slightly reduced cadence in the range of 90 to 100 RPMs. So again, this is consistent with some of the other papers that we talked about, this 90, 80, 90, 100 range. This is fair, and I think that, that makes sense. I think that's what we also observe in the world. And then they said, this is interesting, and I, I think there's this depends on the population. During ultra-endurance cycling, which they define as greater than four hours, they suggest the performance would be improved by using a relatively low cadence in the range of 70 to 90. So I think one of the things you're seeing here is that there's overlap in all of these things, right? Time trials, road, long road races, and then maybe except for your sprint, you can pick up the cadence. But if you were in the, if you were at 90 all the time, you would meet most of their their recommendations, and they suggested that lower cadences, well, relatively lower cadences, right, show improvements in cycling economy, which is true in these other papers as well. And that makes sense because also you're going to be a lower cadence for those longer events, your power is going to be lower.
0: Right. So, so there's, there's a lot of things that sort of fit together here. My initial reaction is at, when you're sprinting, when you're doing high intensity efforts, even a prolonged, in their case, they called prolonged riding of a time trial. You don't really care about metabolic efficiency even in a time trial. You're never going to run out of kilojoules.
1: Right. It's so short, relatively short relative to the energy you could have available.
0: Right. And so the focus maybe should be on power rather than conserving energy. And same with sprinting. Sprinting is the ultimate example of not really caring about how much energy you put into the system. It's usually done right at the end of the race. You usually get to stop and have your recovery shake right afterwards. We know that 80 or maybe 90 is the most efficient, and so it would make sense for them to say, for the event that requires conserving energy the most, stay right in that 70 to 90 range. And then for these other events, maybe the efficiency can drop off, and there is that balance between getting as much power out as possible and being as efficient as possible. And that... that is interesting, and I wonder if that's kind of how our brain works with some of these different efforts. We know that these elite cyclists who had an average cadence of 96 for their VO2 max intervals, they subconsciously decided that that was the right balance. They, they knew they could be a little less efficient, but that they had to produce this certain amount of power in order to hit their VO2 max. And, you know, other athletes who maybe are doing a longer distance, they... I, you know, I, I just wonder if this is subconscious or is it a comfort thing? Like, how does our brain pick it? And back to the original question, Todd, do you have a conclusion on do we just do what our brain says or do we actively try and stay within a certain zone?
1: So I think there's a range here for a reason. The authors didn't conclude the most efficient cadence is 87 RPMs. They suggested a range, 90 to 100, 70 to 90. And I think that's to account for individual variation. So I think there's a couple of pieces that are happening here. Uh, I think your point's totally valid in terms of the demands are different across the different pieces here, whether it's a sprint or it's an ultra endurance event. What, what you need to optimize is a little bit different in each of those sprints power, and it doesn't matter. Once you're done, you're done. Uh, where ultra endurance, you need to optimize energy. So I think there's a couple pieces. So one is training if you're well trained you're probably capable of riding a higher cadence versus someone who's not so that may be a factor why you choose a lower cadence or why you choose the cadence that you do but i think with i think you should probably try to be within that range look at the event or the duration that you're trying to ride for and then see if you are within that range and if your self-selected cadence is not within that range it may be worth experimenting and spending some time training to become competent in pedaling in that range to see if you get a performance benefit. I think that's for me what it boils down to is question one, for the duration or the event that I'm doing, am I do I pedal in this range anyhow? If yes, then there may be little to change. If no, then there may be some benefit to be gained, especially as the event gets longer.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I I think the takeaway here is, you know, some people that I ride with, uh, especially in group rides, they're at 60 cadence the entire ride. Climbing, descending, flats, everything. I think that person, if you are that person, maybe ask yourself, should I be working on this? What do I need to do to pick up the cadence? Is my bike fit uncomfortable so it's harder to pedal at a higher speed? Uh, Do I lack core strength so it's hard? Or whatever it could be, I think this is a good sort of dummy check to say, you know, am I in the right place? If you're doing your VO2 max intervals at 70 cadence, that's another, you know, kind of red flag of I'm maybe not doing this correctly, or maybe there's something uh, wrong either with my body, like uh, I have really tight hip flexors, so I can't unweight the pedals, and that means I'm more efficient at a lower cadence, like. If that's what it is, and certainly we could probably have a follow-up episode with you know potential reasons why you may p- you know pedal or bike in a certain way. But I think uh, you know another example of this is one of my collegiate friends. He always said his fastest sprints or his most powerful sprints were at 100 cadence. And you know, I was racing on the track a lot then and I was like, well, my fastest are like 140 cadence. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that's more normal, 120-140. And you know, we didn't really explore it that much, but, you know, listening to these things that you're saying, Todd, I would probably tell him 100 is too low, like, either... Or at
1: least on the low end, right? And yeah, you might, uh, you might benefit from bumping that up a bit.
0: You know, it is all kind of subconscious, and so the question is, can we just get him to drop a gear and suddenly the problem's solved, or does he need to do more box jumps to get the explosive snap he needs to ride at a higher, higher cadence, or... Uh, maybe he has some flexibility issues and so it's harder for him to hit that higher cadence like i think this is a good like i said dummy check to say am i in the right zone and you can sort of check that off the box check that box off and say okay cadence is fine but if you're outside the zone it's sort of is a nice little red flag that says maybe explore this further and figure out why you're not in the zone
1: yeah i think that makes perfect sense and i would agree with you from the sprint standpoint i can tell you All of my highest peak power readings are at 110, 115, 120 cadence, not at 100. And so, okay, well, that that sort of checks that box. Yep, that makes sense. I probably wasn't going to get too much more power out of that. Um, And I think at the look at my data, but I I do think my longer endurance rides do live below 90 for the most part. So that sort of makes, like I think I kind of live in these ranges. Now, whether that's subconscious or why I ended up there, I can't tell you, but I do think I tend to live in those ranges. So lucky me, I guess, I suppose.
0: Yeah. And on the topic of cadence, I know um, Sepp Kuss, who is now, uh, you know, destroying the Tour de France. It's great to see him up there at the front. He, I listened to an interview with him and he said his coach worked on, you know, threshold at low cadence, threshold at high cadence, threshold at medium cadence. Being a dynamic rider, Is also important at least at the elite level and so it's interesting that his coach would emphasize that I'm wondering how that fits into here and um, maybe if you're a better athlete a more dynamic athlete you can handle these changes in cadence so thinking about that just sort of putting all the puzzle pieces together in terms of overall efficiency it seems like a rider's self-selected cadence is fairly metabolically efficient so that's good there isn't a forceful change, just, you know, we don't all have to ride at 50 cadence because it's the most efficient, even if we don't want to, it seems like for most of us, we're doing a decent job, but, you know, once again, just, just make sure you're, you're in the right range.
1: Yeah. I think to your point, it's just a nice little reality check to, uh, to ask that question and look at a little of data from your ride and say, yeah, do my long rides fit in this 70 to 90 range? Okay. That's probably, that's probably all right. I probably don't need to change anything. Um, Do my sprints fit in this 100 to 120? That's great. Do they not? Hmm. Maybe there's something I should look at training there. And and the other piece to take away is that we we know for sure, every study confirms this, too high is not a good thing. There is a maximal cadence. And once you keep going, it gets less and less efficient. So if you're already at 125, you probably shouldn't explore 150 for your sprints.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I'm trying to think on the track specifically. There are some uh, really interesting videos of uh, this French track sprinter who uh, he gets on the trainer and he ramps up to like 220 cadence and mm-hmm. then ramps back down. And those are fascinating. And that's not metabolically efficient, but he's sprinting. Who cares? Um, and so I wonder if there's another conversation of what is the most powerful.
1: Sure. And there's probably something that also has to happen with acceleration there that maybe plays a role and I think there's other parameters of performance perhaps in track where acceleration matters if you can create a or in sprinting in general if you can create a little bit of a gap between yourself and your competitors that might make a big difference because now they're not in your slipstream and you can ride away and that's they'd have to work much much harder than if they were so there may be other components within the strategy of a race or within your tactics of a race where because it's short these efficiency numbers actually don't matter. It is actually strategically beneficial for you to ride at a high cadence that the research would tell you is quite inefficient.
0: That's a good point, and so it's difficult. It's maybe something that you learn over time as you develop as a rider. And yeah, I think that for me personally, I like to be a little bit higher gear than I want to be. So my cadence, I'll I'll let my cadence drop a little bit if I know I have to respond to attacks because I always want to be able to push hard into a heavy gear to accelerate when I need to. And maybe that's a bit of a bad habit to ride at that lower cadence, but it is something that I kind of have to do in order to make sure I'm prepared to react. And um, Maybe ideally I should be able to just wind up the gear really high in response to the attack, but then maybe you're inefficient in that way, because when someone attacks and you don't shift and you're up at 120 cadence now, and. And then you're inefficient in that respect. And so it's it's interesting how these all balance. And I, I think I'd have to think about it more and think about specific scenarios where this is important. The big takeaways are for a time trial, we want that 90 to 100. For a really long ride, we want that 70 to 90. Those are good uh, place markers for the area we want to be in.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfect. And I think... There are a lot of other factors. These, these numbers primarily are derived from lab studies and not necessarily race situations and adding a race situation on top of it. I think if if all these things were conducted as time trials where strategy didn't matter, like, okay, you're gonna go ride by yourself and record your time and figure out who's the fastest just based on independent times, then following this advice makes perfect sense as a standalone, but I think once you had a race situation, Like mountain biking is a whole nother can of worms that we could go into, where you have loose or uneven terrain, and now your cadence is going to change because of that. So there's other factors here that are going to influence your cadence beyond just pure efficiency within the situation you're riding in.
0: All right, so there's, again, a few PhD topics for any of you that want to take it. Cadence during uneven terrain, cadence during racing situations, cadence during uh, track work, these are all things that are kind of unknown and we'll have to spend some time experimenting on our own and even getting some wisdom from some coaches or from some people who are more experienced in these particular areas to see what they do and maybe we'll have to do the research by consensus rather than a research by uh, researchers.
1: Although if all the pro riders would allow us to have their power meter data we could really answer that question all that cadence data is out there we could figure out for you know hundreds of race situations which is the best approach
0: mm, so we'll have to contact all the uh, director sportifs we'll anonymize the data i promise
1: all Right. yeah we won't we won't assign it to anyone so we will just say this was a winning race
0: yeah and and then uh this was a winning race effort on a particular mountain that only one race goes up a year but we don't know who it is
1: a, a mountain that's exactly 7.3 kilometers in length.
0: Yeah, and uh, has a very particular altitude, but we won't tell you which one. All right, well, Todd, if you don't have anything else, I guess I'll say that uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you like the show, give us a review, give us a share with your friends. It's a lot of fun making these. Uh, I always like to hear what Todd has to say about these topics. I also enjoy doing my own research and talking about some areas I find interesting, so spread the love. Uh, Let us know if you have any suggestions, if you have any questions, or if you have any topics that you want us to talk about. The contact information for the show is in the show notes if you want to check that. And uh, Todd, if you have anything else.
1: We'll put all the links to the papers here that we discussed in the show notes as well, as we usually do. Uh, With that, I will leave off where I usually do, which is to say, until next time, keep the rubber side down.